if anyone's ever watched Mamma Mia, Pierce Brosnan can't sing. Couple of ABBA hits there that he absolutely butchers. How did he get cast in this role? He's like charming, British, he used to be James Bond. It's like, we can't really sing, but you rationalize it based on those like second order factors. And that's the Pierce Brosnan problem with accountants. Before we get into how that applies to accountants, you've got to learn about David Tuck. My name is David Tuck, co-founder and CEO of Mayday. Our mission is to enable finance teams to close month end faster. But a lot more has happened to David than Mamma Mia and Mayday. My first business was selling pine cones that I collected. We got shut down because health and safety and not having a license. It was Anderson when I applied to it. And by the time I got there, the whole Enron scandal happened. Join us in learning about the vibrant life of David Tuck. My name is Danielle Keevan. Let's uncover the hidden stories of finance professionals as they navigate money, investment, and growth. Let's look into the person behind the CFO title Let's go beyond the budget. Before we get into the episode, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review of the podcast wherever you listen. It helps out the whole Paddle Studios team tremendously and lets us continue to uncover the hidden stories of CFOs. First up, David talks about his childhood in Gloucestershire and how he set up his bedroom. He even decorated his room to match his favorite Premier League team. Listen onward as he talks about a surprisingly early venture into managing finances. Sure, so the first 12 years of my life in Southeast London, uh, an area called Bromley, and then we moved to Cheltenham in Gloucestershire for, for the remainder of my, uh, of my childhood. And then went to university in, in Warwick in the Midlands and then have lived in London ever since graduating. For, so in the best part of 20 years now. My childhood bedroom was my own room and I had my single bed in there, often with an Arsenal duvet and then a sort of fold-out bed underneath for if having friends around for a sleepover. So there was a bunch of football and, and cricket stuff. don't think I was ever really into kind of... I can't picture any music posters... So I feel like I should have a better answer to this, but I think my walls will have been quite kind of, maybe I was an early minimalist, who knows? I think I was relatively early to kind of get a, kind of get my own sort of computer. I think I would have been sort of 13, 14 and, and sort of having that for what predominantly sort of football, so sort of soccer for, for our US audience, management games. Lots of childhood hours were, were spent, were spent managing football teams to some success, I like to think, on that simulation. With experience managing countless virtual football teams to victory, it's no surprise what David wanted to be when he grew up. But as you'll hear next, this dream evolved into other avenues as he grew older. I'll be a bit of an oddity in that regard that, I mean, other than the, the natural like childhood dream to be a professional sportsman, which anyone who's seen me play sport will have realised that that wasn't any kind of realistic dream thing from like a really young age. I've always really loved business. And so that dream would have been an entrepreneur and, and, and building in a business sense. Twofold there, I was got really, really into history from, it would have been about age 12. And, and that was always my strongest subject 
object. I'd really enjoy the sort of synthesizing of different ideas and concepts and and then trying to, what were the events that led up to the American Civil War, for example, you know, synthesizing those factors and, and trying to kind of organize those. And, and, and I see that, you know, in the work that I do today, I think I have, you know, I have a brain that lends itself well to sort of synthesizing, you know, sort of different ideas to come up with, you know, sort of strategies, for example, you know, in a world where there is no like empirical solution and you're going to be making that kind of best guess of, as to what the, in a historical sense, you know, what was the, the sort of the, the most compelling argument. And then the, the other was from sort of 1718, I really, really enjoyed economics A-level, quite a mathematical brain. So I think there's the sort of the analytical, the, the sort of written analytical side with history which to some extent comes over into economics but then you've also got the kind of you know the the newer element uh, within economics as well with a foundation set in the world of finance and economics david was early to the entrepreneurial game his childhood was filled with several harebrained schemes as you'll hear next the first business he started pine cones let's let him describe that one a bit more my first business was aged six selling pine cones that I collected in our local cul-de-sac. Secondary school, my brother and I had a business sort of selling copies of CDs that we would, so, you know, we'd go to the, this is back in the days where you had physical retailers selling CDs, you know, we'd go to what, like an HMV or a Virgin and, and buy the CD, copy it and then copy it again and then take it back and get a refund with the kind of, oh, it was a present and we'd already got it. So it's good high margin business that as well i guess you know that's having moved into SaaS now i look back and it's like well i had a, a love of high margin businesses from a young age the copying the cds that had a bit in it that was a bit out of the you know the, the taking it back is already already a present i remember working as i had a summer job like working on a scoreboard at a local cricket festival and you know there were like food concessions that obviously had paid to be able to sell burgers and hot dogs and bacon sandwiches and whatever we brought in because we were in prime location with the scoreboard so we brought in our own barbecue and made and sold our own bacon sandwiches for a couple of days before we got understandably shut down because you know health and safety and not having a license and what have you so yeah that would have been another one along with the kind of yeah the, the cd duplication if we call it that business david decided it was best to leave the shaky business dealings behind and go forth into the working world he began his career working for one of the big four accounting firms along with our fellow paddler, Chief Marketing Officer Andrew Davies. But the start of David's career had some uncertain beginnings during an interesting period in the world of business that you might be familiar with. Because it's the big four now, and it has been the big four for the last 20 years. Back in the day when I applied and, and, and when Andrew applied, it was the big five with was Arthur Anderson and then just shortened to Anderson. So it was their scholar scheme that was incredibly well regarded and I was thrilled to be accepted onto. And having had that offer accepted, I don't know, it would have been sort of early 2002 before due to start that autumn, the whole Enron scandal happened and Anderson ceased to exist 
exist as a as a firm and in the main was bought up by Deloitte and then it was a case of Deloitte continuing with the scholarship scheme you know under Deloitte's name it was Anderson when I applied to it and by the time I got there it was Deloitte it was just an early insight you know because you think of accounting as this like super stable thing we'll apply to an accounting gap year scheme the big five and yeah they'd been industry consolidation you know it was a big seven and then there'd been a couple of mergers to like bring it down to the the big five but you kind of think okay well those those accounting firms will will be there and then that extent of scandal so i guess it's, it's an early very early career introduction to the fact of well don't don't take anything for granted you know and that they're based obviously you know positive and negative applications that huge positive applications of that as an entrepreneur in terms of look at things with first principles and don't assume the dogma of just because stuff's been around for ages it will it will always be that way you know are there new aspects to it today which means that it could be and should be approached differently which which creates opportunity With a real-world experience of nothing being too big to fail, David's career went onwards. While David has never held the title of CFO, he has certainly held the responsibilities of one. Listen next to him describe his experience at IDEO, alongside Andrew Davies, where David was the interim finance director. I think maybe a year before, maybe sort of 2013, 2014, just whilst I was starting Chaser. And and that was such a great thing. You know, I learned a lot from that. And that's where I met Griff, my co-founder at Mayday, right? He was a CTO at Idio. That period in my life, I'm immensely grateful for in, in, in so many pronounced ways. And it was a great kind of job to do alongside getting kind of Chaser going and, and helped fund the early stages of that. That was Idio just after the ra- they'd raised their first round of kind of institutional funding from Notion Capital and so. So, you know, they'd sort of earnestly done their bookkeeping before that, but didn't have any kind of sort of professional finance function in place. So I came in effectively like fractal part-time CFO, A, to do the like step change of they'd been using free agent as accounting system and putting zero in place. They just opened up a US entity. So needed to think about things like transfer pricing and a separate zero instance for that US entity and how they'd managed the different payrolls and just all the like core pillars of, of running the finance function. But the other big learning that I'd carried from the first startup where I'd been a finance director was where I let myself get too distracted for too long in times of like the backwards looking, you know, what I describe as like financial controls, right? And like tidying up the accounting system. We still did that idio, but really early on, like day one, I was like, right, well, we're going to get a cash flow forecast in place so that we've got the like, we've got a handle on, we've raised this money. What's that's going to track us for? And I guess, you know, when Drew talks about me as the de facto CFO, it would be that because I was doing, it was that element of it that, okay, this is abs- this is the most important thing that the business has got to, got to have a place and got to have a handle on. We're taking all of these decisions now off the back of raising funding. And I'd seen that before with a startup I've worked for. That can so easily get away from you. That just needs to be a spreadsheet. It's just about, ca- you know, it's about tracking cash. Sure, all of the financial controls will come in place. But that was a big learning for me from my first like startup finance role to not wait until the like, the financial control side of things in the accounting system, you know, and the, the nominal code structure and all of that great stuff was like was in place before then getting into, okay, well, are we spending too much money here? It was to do the two simultaneously. And sure, the ability to do the, are we spending too much money forecasting, your ability to do that gets incrementally better once you have a kind of a, a cleaner or more organized kind of financial control side of things. But I think I looked at it as a false dichotomy previously with my first startup finance role where it's like, 
okay, we've got to have a clean system first before we can do that forward-looking side of things. That was incorrect. You can still, and it is essential that you do an element of the forward-looking kind of projection side of things, cash flow runway, what are the drivers of the business, which sure can increase in sophistication from a kind of an FP&A perspective once you get about handle on the control side. David's career then took him to founding his first company in finance, Chaser. While doing research for this interview, we found a hilarious photo of an individual sporting a knight's helmet and drinking a custom beer called Deader Days. And yes, that's a pun. Listen to David color it in more. So this was with Chaser, we created the idea of Sir Chaser Lot, the kind of invoice chasing knight in shining armor. So if you go back to what would it be, February 2015, there'll be a photo of me. I went to the National Theatre costume hire and hired a, a knight suit and a sword actually, and then managed to find somewhere some orange tights that I could wear because orange was the brand of, of Chaser. And yeah, created Sir Chaser Lot as a character for that two-day conference and then he became a staple of, of every event that we exhibited at and it really caught people's imagination it was great as one does with conferences it was what we're we going to give away on our stand and, and my brother he now runs his own craft brewery over in Spain and at that time so this would have been what maybe 2018 I think it was he was working for a, a craft brewery on the Bermondsey Mall in London so we sort of thought well why don't we do a craft ale to give away on the stand people will love that and so we kind of kicked our ideas around for what we would call it and then eventually landed on the name Debtor Days, D-A-Z-E, as a play on, on, on Debtor Days, the accounting term, bottled we went and did a guest brew at their brewery and got some photos of that for the sort of provenance story and then gave that away on the stand and and it was brilliant and, and like funny story about that so kind of classic conference you you know you're next to a couple of other exhibitors and so we had our I don't know whatever it would have been 400 bottles of death days to give away you know which we got delivered to the venue that all went fine and we were kind of you know stacking them up on our stand and there were stands at like right angles to each other and so we went out around the corner it was this property software called released and lo and behold they had branded bottled beer also to give away on their stand and you think come on how has a someone come up with the exact same idea and of all the stands that they could be put on it's right next to us but they just slapped their regular company logo on it we had debtor days we had the whole like logo that we designed we had the story behind it and everyone remembered it and then them you know and it was a great product and everyone like remembered it and it became a sort of must-have and the business still use it today when can i get my bottle or can of debtor days maybe a few people took the kind of like generic branded lager but it's a real learning for kind of with like with the suggest a lot side of things have an idea if you really think something can work and can capture the imagination you might be wrong but you've got to like you've got to do a great job of it because otherwise you don't really learn anything if you do a sucky job of it and it doesn't work you don't learn whether it was because the thing intrinsically wasn't viable or whether it was because if you'd done a better job of it it might have might have taken off so that's the real learnings with both the chase lot side of things and debtor days as a beverage we're really lucky with may day as well because the may the may lends itself to so many puns so we we do quarterly product updates which we're just rebranding or i'm attempting to successfully get everyone to recognize us as may watch so that we can do like taking the kind of the baywatch theme and putting our heads on like deep fake putting our heads on a couple of lifeguard bodies so we'll, we'll see how that one goes Clearly a crafty marketer, as you heard, David is still focused on creativity at Mayday. Listen next to him discuss how consulting with the likes of Zero and Spendesk 
helped him craft his mission to make the complex simple. It was a vision he would carry with him into his next venture with Mayday. Really great question. And I, because I really stumbled into that consulting work after I left Chaser and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And it, it, it just, it, it sort of happened organically after me posting on LinkedIn about being available for consulting work. And it, and it all sort of snowballed from there. I think it just, well, firstly, there's some great businesses there I worked with. So I, in a sense, consulting work, they were paying me, but, it, but in a sense, I got to learn from them in lots of regards as well as them learning from me in terms of the consulting work that they were paying me to do because there were great people and great organizations you know to just build up my reference points of what other organizations do well and you know in some cases what other organizations don't do well to then channel into the venture that that became mayday i think there's another big element of it which was you know, which was really important for me after moving on from Chase and my, my first business was like the confidence in what you know and that great organizations were willing and happily so in terms of the feedback I got about the great value they saw from from working with me. That was a great source of confidence for me to carry into, into Mayday that potentially had I not had the opportunity to do that, I wouldn't have had the same wind in my sails that I did in moving on to venture number two. I really find it fascinating and I'm really fortunate to work with building an incredible team but Griff as a co-founder honestly like energized by that and the way that he kind of looks at sort of accounting problems and how they can be how they can be simplified. I find it energizing up to the point that it becomes intractable and overwhelming in terms of specific complexity and or volume. At that point it's about kind of recognizing you know where your brain's at and finding a way to kind of you know short circuit that thinking but in the main I do. I really find it energizing to think about. And that's one of the things I really love about accounting when it comes to tech product, right? You know, generally accepted accounting principles, it's like this, it's such rich terrain for great automation because it's like, okay, this is what the answer should be. And it's a, how can we find a better way of delivering the answer? So I think it has that really like, it has that really satisfying element to it that provides the peace of mind that there will be a way. And if we haven't found it yet, we need to keep on going because there is that kind of North Star to, to aim to, you know, whereas there are other areas where you could spend a lot of time working on it and it just you might find there's not a way of delivering the answer on this accounting it has lots of challenges but that is not one of them david learned a lot while working with accounting firms but perhaps his biggest lesson came from the hit film mamma mia confused we were too listen next to david break down the pierce brosnan problem for context, that consulting work I did between Chaser and Mayday was all around accounting firms, that is, not qualified accountants who work in a finance team, but accountants who work in accounting firms delivering services to clients, how best to work with them as a channel to market. You know, at a certain point, whenever it would have been, I, I, I forget, you know, maybe last year or the year before, but I pulled together just because I found I was having the, I'm, I'm always really keen to like share my insights and advice with people. And I found I was having the same conversation lots of times with different people. So I thought, okay, I'll um, I'll write this down as a as a LinkedIn article, and it was like, well, how can I make these concepts as as engaging as possible? So it came up with the the idea of the Pierce Brosnan problem for the fact that, well, let me explain the Pierce Brosnan. So if anyone's ever watched Mamma Mia as a film, which if you haven't, what what are you doing? Watch Mamma Mia. You kind of Pierce Brosnan can't sing. A couple of like Abba hits there that he absolutely butchers. You're like, how did he get cast in this role? Like it was a musical film. Like how can someone who 
just can't really sing like lots of other talents but can't really sing get cast in in a film that that is a musical one when you kind of step back from it you realize well that is someone who kind of fell in love with the idea of him for the part he's like charming british he used to be james bond it's like we can't really sing but you rationalize it based on those like second order factors whereas someone had come at it first with like okay this is a musical film someone has to be able to sing first and then we'll look at the other like second order intangibles he'd have never got a look in and that's the pierce brosnan problem with accountants is that people rationalize well they've got all of these clients you know they're close to them they're respected when it comes to finance and then they overlook the fact that just not salespeople and they have no interest in like selling bolt-on products, you know, in like an easy jet or Ryanair sense to their clients. And so, so that's the that's the idea of the Pierce Brosnan problem, that people rationalize based on second order factors, but forget the fact that in the first instance, they've got to be predisposed and capable of initiating that conversation with their clients which unless there is a like a tangible benefit to the accountant in terms of the services they could provide which they have to be able to sell because otherwise they wouldn't have a business so much blood and energy not literal blood but you know like monetary blood has been spent on trying to because it's really persuasive right it's that multiplier of oh well they've got 300 clients all of whom could benefit from this therefore we'll just get them to sell it but that's just not their modus operandi that's not how they look at their clients and the client relationship and therefore that kind of that strategy is doomed to failure the pierce brosnan was my medium for communicating that concept they don't see themselves as salespeople with customers. They see themselves as accountants with clients and a duty of care to them, which sure has to be commercially viable and fruitful. But it's, you know, and so it's not a kind of, it's not a pure benevolent Hippocratic oath, just kind of save the life. It's got to, it's got to pay the bills, but equally it's not an Amazon either. It's somewhere in the middle and people really miss that distinction. And you can tell, you know, they just slip in and out of customers. So much of my concern work it was just like no 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 accountants will never call they'll always call it a firm they'll never call it a company and they will never ever refer to their customers they will only refer to their clients honestly the amount of time i just spent trying to like drill that into people's heads what a brilliant metaphor to understand an important concept but david's expertise as a leader doesn't end there he also understands the importance of mental health and how he incorporates specific values within Mayday, including one that often goes overlooked. Then he discusses the two elements he focuses on to help him during his own struggles. I really enjoyed that, the mental health first aid course that I did, again, like after leaving Chaser and, and before starting Mayday. I think there's a bunch of stuff at the more like sophisticated end about getting into the kind of indicators so that you can, you know, be aware and, 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 and listen and, you know, sort of give advice where people are struggling. I think Mayday, right, like we've got five values, delight, ownership, curiosity, boldness, and, and I won't get into detail of what we mean by all of those, but I'm sure you'd find those as values in a bunch of other startups our fifth value which is effectively a wrap around all the others is is balance which is i think a more unusual value to have and that's born out of griffin neither griff nor i are sort of startup spring chickens i think this applies to kind of finance leaders and finance teams in general it's just like recognizing the paramount importance of balance and yeah sometimes you are going to need to kind of go up into the red zone you say the side of green zone orange zone and, and, and red zone 
there are going to be times in life where you have to go, you have to dip into the red zone. That's just the the nature and unpredictability of life. You know, and then there are going to be times, potentially, you know, sustained periods where you're going to need to be in the orange zone because of what the situation requires. But defining that concept and recognizing that all of our individually and then collectively, our optimal situation is to be at the very, very P of green zone. That's that's the sweet spot where we want to operate at. And that's something that it was really important to us to kind of define because unless you do define it, it's just so easy to slip into kind of orange or even red being the kind of the expectation and the default. And and that's how that's where burnout and mental ill health, the kind of situational like that's like raw to, like that's um kind of rich turf for mental ill health, right? Where you just you're not able to look after yourself effectively. So that idea of balance, I think, just kind of cuts across everything and, and, and kind of defining what what optimal and what expected is and should look like. Well, there, there's two elements to this, right? Like I write a building public blog for, for May Day and like that's great for normalizing things, I find. It's great for holding myself accountable. I've really noticed how it, it almost provides shock absorbers to prevent me from getting into a rut because it's like, I'm going to be accountable for this. I don't want to write, I, I wrote bi-weekly progress problems plans post. I don't want to write a post where I'm, I've been in a rut for a couple of weeks. So it's like, you know, there's going to be those things that kind of knock down, but that acts as a kind of an enforced springboard for knowing that, okay, I'm going to be writing in at some point in the next two weeks and therefore I need to kind of bounce bounce back, bounce back faster. That's one element of it. And then, but then, you know, when those kind of crucibles do come, I've found writing the most amazing, you know, so there's like the public writing and the accountability that provides and the sort of shock absorbers point that I just made. But then something is kind of happening internally. It's like, wow, that was a big hit. We all go there, right? Where it, it kind of throw, it shakes up the mental slow globe. I found the single best way. And then this is just for me to get out of that snow globe shaking moment and get onto the front foot fastest is by like writing it out clarifying my own thoughts almost like calibrating it reconciling it in my long-term memory so that my kind of you know my prefunct cortex my kind of deliberate brain can get going special thanks to david tuck for being on the show you can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter if you'd like to say thanks yourself. Know anyone who would be great for the show? Send an email to our senior show producer, ben.hillman at paddle.com. Also, please leave a five-star review if you enjoyed the podcast. We'll see you next time on Beyond the Budget, a podcast from Paddle Studios dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.